0: World Gamers anonymous episode 186 top 10 best at two player euro games we'd like to thank our brand new patreon backer francesco for helping us bring you an ad-free episode you're listening to a proud member of the dice tower network dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming it's sort of like voltron But with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast with board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And it's actually only Chris this week. Anthony's off at another convention. Did you know there was conventions for things other than board games? I know, it sounds made up to me too. But Anthony claims it is a big and important marketing convention up in Boston. And unfortunately, he won't be able to join us here this week for our episode, which is, ironically, Top 10 Best Two-Player Euro Games. So we're not talking about games that are just two-player games. That's a completely different episode that we already did. Check back for that episode We're talking about games that have a player count that could range maybe 1 to 8, or typically 2 to 4, maybe 5 to 6 with an expansion. And maybe you've had a chance to play these games, but maybe they haven't been so great because you haven't been playing at the right player count. So we want to talk to you about the best top 10 games in which you should try out at the two-player count. Because... We found it's really ideal at that player count. We have a lot of things to talk about on this episode. We have acquisition disorders at the table. This is a big episode. We tried to get him some guest hosts for you for this week, but unfortunately, we couldn't get the scheduling corrected. I'd like to thank my friend Eddie for trying so hard to get on the episode, and everyone else just didn't work out with scheduling, and of course, Board Game Geek fell down and crashed on top of everything else, and of course, I got sick, so... A lot of things happening, but we wanted to get you a brand new episode for this week. All right, so first off, Eric talked about Trajan because you'll be able to specialize a lot more. Selena mentioned Orleans and the Gallerist. Andrew mentioned Through the Ages. Jerry mentioned a whole bunch of them, but in particular, I want to pick out Arboretum, which plays excellent at two players. Matthew and Henrik mentioned Caverna, which is great because anytime you can shrink down that high number of options, all the better and Drew mentioned Lahav. These are all great choices. I'm really glad to see that people have been thinking about this because honestly, the challenge with games happens to be obviously first the rulebook, second getting the great, you know, number of people together, and then third are you playing with the right group of people? I know for some gamers they won't even touch a game if it's not at the right player count because you want to have the best experience possible. Now, if you'd like to jump in and let us know what you think could be or is The Best Game at Two Players, please hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. There's so many different ways to get in touch with us, but we also want you to get in touch with everybody else at the table and let them know about BGA and get them to join us on social media and at the table. All right, so that's everything for our question of the week. Now to our acquisition disorders. So for our acquisition disorders this week, I I, I got a really interesting one for you. Maybe you've heard about this. This is Yerg Now, Yerg de Siel came out in 2011. It was an amazing co-op game. One of the first kind of like mainstay co-op games. And it was all about North mythology. Odin, Thor, Frey, Heimdall, Freyj. They're all battling against Ragnarok. You have all of the giant monsters that you've seen in these upcoming and recently released Marvel movies but it's basically everything from the mythology it's so great to be able to have an opportunity to play as all these gods versus all of these monsters just tearing everything down what's really fun about the game is even though it's a co-op game you do get to play your own character you get to do your own things and what you're trying to do is just keep off ragnarok long enough so the deck could run out now what's really fun about this game is that you can set the deck up to be any level of difficulty that you want based upon how much bad stuff you put in there how much you limit yourself so it really was the first solo game in my opinion or co-op game that really did this best and it actually has an app the app is a little old but it does play very well and has great artwork so basically throughout the game you are collecting tokens so, basically, you're collecting tokens one way or the other in order to make yourself more powerful, to get help from the elves, to get weapons from the dwarves. You're getting Vikings to help you in Midgard. You're fighting giants that spawn. And that's really a lot of fun, too, because they'll block some of your special abilities and opportunity to go to certain areas, which is really, really fun. And then you're just kind of, like, you know, altering these different bags of tokens throughout the game so that when you do pull from he- for help that you'll be able to pull the help that you need and then use those tokens to add to your score when you roll the dice to fight back the big monsters and the big baddies in this game. It's a lot of fun. It's extremely intense and a really challenging game, but at no time does it feel particularly mean. It just feels difficult, which really a co-op game should. Now, they're not doing a full reprint of this game, and it's going to be available at Essen, and they had a couple hundred copies on Board Game Geek. Unfortunately... Those copies already came and went. As you can see, it's a very popular game it has been out of print for quite some time. But I'm assuming that Ludonauts being able to bring this game back out is going to run a second print run because it just sold out. So I guess they didn't realize the amount of people who wanted this game. They should have because we've been talking about this game for a very long time and I'm extremely happy that this game is out. Now, another great acquisition story you should take a look at is an upcoming Kickstarter that just recently hit. You'll probably have a little bit more than a week to to try to pick this game up. This is by Eagle Griffin. This is Football Highlights 2052. It's football season, and Mike Fitzgerald came out with this game. Now, you probably already have played at some point the uh, baseball version of his game with all the cyborgs and robots. That was also a lot of fun. That was Baseball Highlights 2052. Forty-five. Now, basically what you're doing in this game is you have your offense and defense, and it's going to make sense in a second, versus the other team's offense and defense. And basically by that I mean you have this little board that represents the football field, and what you're going to be doing each turn is running your offense by playing a card, and then based upon the defensive card that's played against you— you might be able to move your ball down the field, and then you're obviously trying to score a field goal or a touchdown. Once your turn is over, based upon if they blocked it or if you lost yardage, then your card flips around, and now that card that you played for offense is now used for defense. So you're going to have an offense and a defense on the same card, and basically your team is playing offense and defense at the same time. They play an offensive play based upon the defensive card that they played. Now you have an opportunity to play your card to stop their pass or run. So this is a very fast place game, a lot faster than Baseball Highlights 2045. So this campaign is up and available in a number of different options to back. You can also back the baseball version if you didn't happen to get a chance to pick that up. This campaign wraps up Friday, September 21st, 2018. So... I would definitely recommend checking this out if you're a sports fan, if you're looking for a solo game that's pretty excellent, or a two-to-four-player game. I haven't played this, so I can't comment on the player count, but I know it does play well solo. I also had an opportunity to play this on the app, at least in the baseball version. Check it out. That is Football Highlights 2052 by Mike Fitzgerald's new card game. All right, so that's everything from our acquisition disorders. Now let's talk about the games that are hitting our table. So for the games this week, I got four games to the table, I'm going to let you know if the game is a buy, and you should run out and purchase that game, if the game's a play, and you should definitely check out that game, if the game's a dodge, and you should just pretty much play something else, or if a game is a burn, and it's not good at any player account. All right, so the first game up is King's Forge. Now, King's Forge is about the Chamberlains searching the realm for a new craftsman to the king. And he sets out a contest in order to find out who is the best crafter and smith amongst everyone in the realm. So you are going to be challenged against your other opponents at the table to craft four items of the highest quality possible by the end of the game. Whoever crafts the four items first and obviously has the highest, at least on one of the items by the end, wins the game. So the game has a certain amount of a race element to it. So basically what you're looking at is you have a really lovely looking, I wouldn't say fantasy, but kind of a fantasy-esque board where you're seeing the diff- the realm and you have all these different buildings and places for the cards. And basically what the board is doing is giving you an opportunity to set up all the cards properly. Basically the cards have everything you need on it, but the board's a really nice touch and very good quality. In addition to the board, you have dice because dice are going to be used in order to craft the different items in the game. There are the standard six pip dice, but they're all different colors. Some of them are translucent, some of them have sparkles in them. Really nice dice. Standard otherwise, but really nice. And since you're going to be using them throughout the game, it's really nice to have them. There's also going to be crafting cards. The artwork is excellent here. It's going to show you what's required based upon the color of the die, what the item is, And then a particular number that's going to designate how difficult it would be to craft that or how valuable that particular item is. When you're trying to create four items at the end of the game, you want to be able to have at least one high value item. Because if somebody else crafts four items at the same time as you or four or more, the person with the highest number on the card is going to win that game. In addition to the crafting cards are going to be gathering cards. Gathering cards are going to be very important throughout the game because they are going to allow you to manipulate the dice, add additional dice that are going to allow you to craft the different items in the game. So based upon the player count, a number of these gathering cards will be placed out and each card will have an ability or an item on the top or the bottom. You will choose the card based upon your ability to do so in case it requires a certain number of dice. And then you will get the special ability of that card it might add a one or more particular dice into your pool it might add dice directly into your hand it may modify the dice allowing you to re-roll or add additional pips to the die and that's going to be important because trying to reach that right number or go beyond the required number in order to steal the card is really really important in addition to that there's going to be dock tiles in the game and there's four doctiles, tiles but Based upon the expansions and a number of other things, that number could change. But basically, this is going to be your spot where you're going to be able to pick up different types of dice. So wood, magic, and such. You're going to be able to give up a die and then get dice. And depending on the rarity of the material, you might have to give up more dice in order to get that particular die. But it's definitely required. There's also a spot in which you'll be able to pick up tokens. They may add plus ones to your dice or they might just give your die a number six which is pretty simple and fun now beyond all that kind of stuff there's a little smithy tile that kind of represents you throughout the game and it's basically where you're going to place your items once you forge them so the game basically goes like this you're going to have a gather phase where you're going to be able to pick those particular cards use those cards and claim those gifts from those cards you can be able to use the dock action to pick up those different dice that you might need. Then you go to the crafting phase. Now, the crafting phase is the opportunity where you'll be able to roll your dice, modify them based upon what you might have available, and then be able to particularly craft that item. Now, if someone's crafted an item you want, you might have an opportunity to steal that item if you're able to roll what's required, but at least one pip higher on one of the dice. Basically, that's pretty much it as far as the game's concerned. That's the end of the phase. You clean up, wash, rinse, repeat. Whoever gets four cards first wins the game. If there's a tie, the person with the highest card, they'll have the opportunity to win that game. There's some player interaction in this game because stealing cards and going for particular items that you're trying to craft or going for those gathering spots are particularly important um, based upon where you're sitting in the game who gets to roll first, who gets to roll next, you know, can get a little, little challenging. This game is, I would say, a light to maybe, just maybe a medium weight game. It was fun and enjoyable. It's it's kind of a filler game. I know that there is a number of module add-on expansions that add different types of dice and different special abilities that might give this game a little more of a bump up to a buy, but as of right now, King's Forge is, I would say, a solid play. I would say as a filler or for light gamers who are just getting involved in gaming. All right, so that's King's Forge. All right, next up is Warsaw, City of Ruins. Now, this is the renamed game of Capital by North Star Games. This is just to kind of help the American audience not get confused about where this game is taking place and to add, I guess, a little bit Of theme for otherwise a very themeless pasted-on-themed game so basically what we're looking at here is the great city of Warsaw in Poland in which it was devastated over two world wars and how the city and its people came back to keep rebuilding this great city now there's some of that information in the game book but there's not a lot in the actual game but you do get at least a little bit of a sense of the game as you build over these different generations Now, the game is a quick tile-laying game which plays two to four players, and it happens over six different epochs of play. Now, the game insert is really interesting because basically the different epochs of tiles fit really nicely in this kind of shape of a building. You'll have these really interesting Plastic Mermaid figures that are representing the city, and that's basically your turn marker. There is tokens which I feel is like the lowest grade quality part to this game. Everything else is at least fine or above average here. So basically what you're going to be doing is you're going to be building up the city or your own little city in a 4x3 grid. So basically at the start of your turn, you are going to get four tiles. You're going to pick one, choose whether to discard that tile for three money or place it in your district Pass the remaining tiles to your opponent And then build that tile and pay the money cost of that tile in the game. And then you're gonna continue to pass the remaining tiles until there's no tiles left. And when you place the tiles in your district, you have to, of course, once again, go by the four by three rules. But each tile is going to have special different buildings on there. It could be a commercial, it could be industrial, it could be transportation, it could be residential, it could be parks. So you really want to place the tile in the right spot that's going to allow you to score the most points possible. And on many of the tiles, the district tiles will actually have multiple elements. So you might have a residential and a park on the same tile, or you might have all four different elements on the same tile. So based upon how you lay the tile down, what it's up against, you're going to score different points. So parks adjacent to residential Areas is going to score you points, but you could also score points for commercial areas being adjacent to residential areas. Industrial areas is going to give you money, but you're going to lose a point if it's next to a residential area because nobody wants industrial on top of residential. Purple areas are going to give you victory points based upon what's on them. Transportation is going to give you two points as long as they're separated from each other somewhere on the board you're going to score points throughout the game. It's going to be really interesting as far as that's concerned. Then there are special milestone buildings that you're going to be able to get at the end of the epoch that's going to be able to give you a special ability, not to mention all the different special buildings themselves that will do different things for you, like the armory, which is going to protect a certain tile each time the city gets attacked. So basically, you're going to play this over six different epochs, and at the end of the game, you're going to score one last time, And then that's pretty much it as far as the game's concerned. So there are a lot of connections here as far as a little bit of Seven Wonders because you're doing some drafting between two cities because you're building your own particular city and you are drafting at the same time. There's a little similar graphic design here as far as the different colors, how the different city blocks kind of work together or work against each other based upon how they're lined up. Obviously, the scoring here is a lot more straightforward But there's a lot of different scoring opportunities here to kind of keep you involved. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, since Warsaw went through a lot of different turmoil, especially in World War I and World War II, during the World War I period, you'll see a little plane flying over, and you'll have to destroy one of the different district tiles in your district. That might mess you up a little bit, but as I mentioned, there are opportunities to come back from that. In addition to building over previous tiles, that are no longer scoring you points. Now, once the Second World War comes along, you have to destroy two tiles, which is going to set you back again, but you'll get more additional tiles and be able to build up your district once again. So, after six epochs, game comes to an end, you count up points, you count up money for an additional point or two, and that's pretty much the game. This is definitely on the, I would say, light to medium weight game as far as tile laying is concerned. It's not too difficult. You are trying to pick the best scoring opportunity when you're placing your tiles down. And obviously, there are special buildings that come along with those regular buildings that are along in the draft. So once you become aware of what different epochs are available then, you might want to build towards those particular tiles. But the game moves pretty fast and quick. It's enjoyable. It's definitely a very good filler. So I would say for Warsaw City of Ruins, it gets a play. I probably would want to see something a little bit more. Maybe we'll see an expansion to this game. But as it stands, it's a good price point. I would highly recommend playing the game. And maybe if you're looking for a filler, picking it up. Next up, we have Dragon Castle that was released in 2017 from Simon Games. Now, Dragon Castle is a, I would say, loosely inspired version of Mahjong. You're basically going to have Mahjong-like tiles that are going to be use to build up your dragon castle and your dragon castle is just a combination of tiles that either you choose from the different player mats that come with the game or it allows you to make up your own creation and basically put it into action so basically what you're going to do in this game is you are going to choose one of three possible actions in this game at least until a fourth action comes available at the end of the game So, at the start, you have to take a tile from the top of the dragon castle. So, pick any color you'd like. And then, as one of the actions, you can pick a second tile of the identical color. So, if you pick a green, you got to pick another green from somewhere else in the castle. You then take those tiles and make it part of your own special building section. Now, once you start building up your section, you have to be very careful because... Once you get four colors of the same type that are adjacent to each other, they flip over and those will be able to score you points. But you do want to build it up high enough in order to score the maximum amount of points possible. So by flipping over four tiles, you get two points. By five, three, six, four, seven tiles gives you six points. Eight tiles gives you eight points, which I think is the ideal situation. Or anything above that will give you one additional victory point. If you happen to flip over the tiles that score a red yellow or green you'll be have an opportunity to place a temple token on top of one of your tiles that have recently flipped over that's important because that's gonna score you points at the end of the game as well so you want to keep that in mind if you flip over tiles that are either blue or black you can place two temple toppers on top of your tiles Thus, score you even more points And if you get lucky and you flip over purple tiles, not only can you put on two temple toppers, but you'll also score one additional victory point. So ideally, that's what you want to do throughout the game. Now, jumping back, our second action that you can take is take one tile from the top and then take a temple topper. So that's where you get those temple tops in order to place them throughout the game. And then your third action is basically you can take a tile discard it and gain a victory point. Maybe there's not something available for you because throughout the game, you're only able to take the tiles that have a long open section available to you. So it might not be the color you want and you may not want to kind of like cluster up your own particular board because that actually works against you by the end of the game. Now, in addition to that particular setup, there's also an opportunity to score additional victory points based upon special ability cards that you can choose to have in the game. Now, these could be dragon cards or spear cards, or you can have both, and there's a large number of cards in this game, so you can add some variety to the game. It may add an extra temple, it may allow you to move tiles throughout the game, it just adds a little bit more to the game. Basically, you're scoring victory points throughout the game by doing these different actions, and then once you finally run out of tiles, the game starts to come to an end and then a fourth action opens up to everybody in which they can take a two-point dragon tile, which is going to be, I guess, the final countdown clock for the game to come to an end. So once that happens, the game wraps up. Typically, the game runs about 30 to 45 minutes. I think that's pretty good at the larger play count. I think probably for this, it probably plays best at the two-player count. But it's a really enjoyable game no matter how many people are playing at the table. I should mention that the tiles are great quality here. They're not traditional Mahjong tiles, so don't expect anything super quality for it. But at least for a board game here, they are very good quality. The artwork here is outstanding. Beautiful artwork. The only thing that really lets it down a little bit is the victory point tokens. They're kind of just like really cheap cardboard punch-outs which typically wouldn't be bad, but everything else in the game is so nice that it kind of lets it down a little bit. So Dragon Castle is obviously, on the once again, on the light to medium weight game level. Highly enjoyed the game. It's very kind of serene as you're building your castle. There's a little tension based upon how many players you're playing with in the game. If it's on the low player count, then every tile is a possible opening or shutting down of you. If it's at the four-player count, then you really just have to wait to your turn. But once again, play this at two. I think if I didn't already have an epic list of top ten games best at two, Dragon Castle would definitely be on that list, maybe at number 11. But nonetheless, Dragon Castle deserves a buy. This is definitely a fun game. You can play with pretty much anybody, matching the colors, matching the symbols. Good for a filler, good for a family really nice as an abstract game and those different spirit and dragon cards that are available in the game adds a just a little bit of variety to the game that you really do need to bring this game out to the table again and again and finally we have everdale by starling games everdale is a very unique game you probably saw it on kickstarter because you couldn't avoid the fantastic artwork here it's i would say it's Storybook inspired, mythological, anthropomorphic little creatures, critters, all your kind of woodland creatures, given to the fact that they have decided to start a city. So in Everdale, you are building up your own little city environment, trying to recruit these different critters in the game. Some are unique, some are common, and building unique and common buildings in your city in order to score victory points. Now, from the look of the artwork, you would think this is a kid's game, and it's definitely light, and it's definitely something that may not be something you want to get to your table, but it's actually a very deep and interesting game. Definitely on the medium weight side of uh, board gaming's concern. But basically, the game is very streamlined, very elegant, and as I mentioned, a little complex. So basically, what you're going to be on doing on your turn is you're going to be taking one of three possible actions. So one of the actions is place a worker because this is a basic worker placement game. Now, by placing your worker, you'll have an opportunity to go to a number of different locations on this board, which is not just your standard board, but Everdale has a number of different, beautifully unique opportunities to collect berries or pebbles or resin or little little branches, I assume. Now, all of these different components in the deluxe version are really nice 3D little plastic pieces that, be careful, because they do roll, but they're very nice pieces, and they represent the different resources in the game. So, berries are important because that's going to help you recruit different critters, and then obviously the wood, the resin, and the pebbles will help you build the different buildings in the game. So... At the start of the game, you will set out four different random locations. That's going to give you an opportunity to get different resources and cards in the game. Then there'll also be a number of different locations on the board itself where you'll be able to pick up the resource that you'll need. And then the meta, which is the middle of the board, will be all the different cards of critters and different buildings that you'll be able to build. But that's not it. On top of all of that, there'll be opportunities to score major victory points throughout and at the end of the game. These spots are in the back of the board, which if you get enough of a certain symbol on your cards as part of your city tableau, you'll be able to have an opportunity to place your worker there and pick up those victory points. In addition to that, there are also four random victory point conditions placed on the top of the tree, once again based upon how many players you're playing in the game. And on the very top of this tree, and I'm calling it a tree because it's a 3D cardboard structure, and it really is a structure. It's not too difficult to put together, but it is a little taxing from time to time. At the top of this tree is where you're going to place your additional meeples that you'll get at different phases during the game. On the very top, it'll tell you those different phases. So you start winter, then it's spring, summer, and fall, and you'll be able to pick up additional little helpers. And you'll be able to run certain buildings at each of those particular seasons. So in addition to being able to place your worker, you'll also have an opportunity to play a card. So you have a number of cards in your hand that once again are just like the ones in the meadow. So different critters and different buildings based upon the requirements that they need. You'll be able to pay those requirements, put those buildings right to play. But you can also play buildings or critters that are part of the meadow already as long as you have the resources available. So there's a lot of opportunity to play a number of different cards throughout the game. Finally, after you placed all your workers, and after you placed all of your cards that you can play in the game, then finally, you'll be able to prepare for next season, which means you'll take all your workers back, and then based upon the season that you're in, you might be able to reactivate some of your buildings, or get additional workers, or at the very end of the game, you're pretty much done. And that's pretty much it as far as the actions are concerned in Everdale. As I said, it's definitely on the medium weight side of the game in particular because the cards themselves have a lot of text that you have to kind of figure out because a lot of things chain off each other. So, for example, some of those victory point conditions towards the end of the game are going to require certain cards. And those cards themselves, for example, some of the buildings will allow you to recruit a special critter for free, which is excellent. So build a certain building and then just wait for that critter to come out and you can put them as part of your city selection area. And then in addition to that, those cards will be able to give you a number of different victory points and special abilities and use other people's different cities. And there's dungeons and then there's cemeteries and then there's post offices and there's official buildings and there's markets and innkeepers and husbands and wives. Just really a lot of different possibilities. here. There's a large stack of cards. Doesn't seem like you're gonna get through it all, but you pretty much get through the vast majority of the cards, and they're going to score you a lot of points throughout the game, but it, you do have to be able to keep all of those different text opportunities in front of you. Keep those in mind as you play the game. As I mentioned, the components are great. The game starts a little bit slow, and as I mentioned, there's a lot of text on the game, so you really have to keep an eye on that because it's really easy to miss something that you definitely need to, to know about. Now, I should also mention that they right now have a new Kickstarter called Pearl Brook, the first expansion for Everdale, and that will wrap up on Thursday, September 27th. And if you're looking to pick up Everdale and Pearlbrook, you can do that right now, or you can just pick up the expansion. Now, for Everdale, I'm surprised... But you know what? I'm gonna say that this game is a buy. It offers enough complexity and the artwork and the components are of high quality that even though it's gonna take you a little more time to set it up, even though some people might think it's a little light from the looks of it, it's engaging and endearing enough that you're gonna wanna come back to play this game again and again because of the different combination of the cards that come into play. It's a lot more interesting and complex than it looks. It's a lot of fun. It's definitely going to bring a lot of people to the table. That's Everdale. All right, so that's everything that's hitting our table. Now on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are looking at the top 10 games that are best at two players. Now, as I mentioned before, we already have a list of the top 10 best two-player games that are just built for two players. But probably like many of you, I mostly go to meetups when I'm playing my games. So typically, we're trying to get as many people at the table as possible, which means that almost every game that we play has the maximum player count. Now, sometimes that doesn't allow for the best gameplay possible. Some games just play better at a two-player count, but typically because... Publishers and designers want to have a number of people at the table. They will sometimes expand upon that or not test the game out enough. So you'll see a player count that might range from one to eight. And you're like, well, where's the best experience from this? Or maybe you'll actually just sit down, play a game, maybe not play at the best player count possible, maybe too few or too many. And it really just throws the game off for one reason or the other. So, looking at all the games that we have played over the past several years, we wanted to put together a list of the best games, or Euro games in this case, that play best at 2, that have a player count that could range from anywhere from 1 to 8, based upon the different expansions. Now, typically, you like to play a Euro game at 4, but a lot of these great Euro games play best at 2. So, let's start off with a new old classic And our number 10 is Brass. Now, Brass made the number 10 list because Brass is interesting because what you're doing primarily in the game is you're putting down connection and industry that's going to allow the next player to utilize that connection and industry to build up their connections and industry. So throughout the game, you're throwing stuff down, not knowing where it's going, but if it does go kind of happy because you're being able to utilize your buildings and score victory points, and then somewhat unhappy because that's going to give them an opportunity to score points as well. When you're playing at four players, you're kind of not sure what you're doing for whom, but when you play at two players, it really gives you an opportunity to know exactly what to do and based upon what's coming next. Brass makes this list especially because... It recently upgraded its rules for a two player count. That's absolutely fantastic. If you haven't played Brass at 2, you definitely should. That's Brass, our number 10. Our number 9 is another Martin Wallace game, Via Nebula. Now, typically, Via Nebula plays from 2 to 4 players. And very similar to Brass, Via Nebula is all about building connections in order to build industries and then transport resources to those industries to be able to complete cards that are going to score you victory points and win you the game. Once again, because you're opening up different areas of industry that's going to open up different resources, it's a lot more fun if you know exactly what the other person could do with your resources so that you could strategically open certain spots and not others. Plus the fact that so many cards with special abilities come into play in this game that you really want to ensure that you're picking the best spots possible. By having a lower player count in this game, you're really able to manage the special abilities a little bit more so it's not as wild and wonky as they come into play, and it's just a lot more fun. Via Nebula does a lot of great things, and it's definitely something you should check out. That's our number nine, Via Nebula. Our number eight game is a game I actually haven't gotten to the table yet, but it happens to be the game that I hear from absolutely everyone that you should play at the lowest player count possible, ideally at two. Now, this game already has its own two-player version, but everyone recommends playing Lahav at two players. So much so that even though I have not played this game at the two-player count, Anthony has been telling me again and again, you gotta play at two, you just gotta play it at two. You'll get crushed, but you definitely gotta play it at two. This is one of Uwe Rosenberg's best games out there, all about managing resources at the docks. So if you do have a chance, play Le Havre at the two-player count. Our number seven game is one of my favorite games, and that's another Uwe Rosenberg game, Agricola. Now, Agricola in its new format plays one to four or up to six players with its expansion. Now, if you haven't played Agricola before, Agricola is all about managing a farm feeding your people, and trying to utilize special cards that come through in a drafting opportunity at the beginning of the game in order to benefit your family and your resources by utilizing different occupations and resources and food throughout the game. The card play in this game is really the challenging, complex part of the game more than anything else. It's a worker placement game, but that early drafting when you're taking a certain card and sending the rest out there... It's really kind of iffy and it really breaks a lot of people and turns a lot of people off from Agricola. But when you have two players, you know exactly what you have, you know exactly what's going and exactly what's coming back to you. So it allows you to build very purposeful instead of just almost like very tactical. Well, this is a good card. Oh, look, another random good card. So maybe those will work together. Maybe they won't. Or maybe I just happen to have four random good cards. When you're playing with two players the worker placement element is a lot tighter and the cards is a lot more strategic. It allows for excellent game and play. So that is our number seven game, Agricola. Our number six game is Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark is a really fun race game that you wouldn't think about as being a race game, but it's all about racing along the trail and in the rapids and the mountains. And you need a lot of different types of transportation in order to do that. So basically, there's a worker placement element in this game, but there's also card play in this game as well. In fact, you're actually playing two cards back-to-back in order to utilize an element and then in order to engage movement. So once again, huge deck, huge market of cards that you'll be able to purchase, and it comes down to a race game. So if you're going to race ahead and you're going to win this game, then you need to know exactly what your opponent is doing. When you have the larger player count here of four players, then it's almost kind of random and almost kind of lucky if the right card just happens to come up to be able to move them that certain distance. It's a good game at four, but it's an excellent game at two. That's Lewis and Clark, our number six. Our number five game is Lisboa. Lisboa plays from two to four players, and there's a lot of Vital Lacerda games It should definitely Look at if you want to play a great two-player game. But Lisboa does it best because it really does shrink down the boards and the options before you. Lisboa takes a long time to play basically because you can follow other players' actions. So if you did an action and you played a certain card, if I have the token that matches where you played it, then I'll have the opportunity to follow and take that action as well at a lesser ability. When you're playing with four players, the game can drag. When you're playing at two players, it goes super quick. Not to mention that the city kind of gets slimmed down a little bit. So looking for a great Vitaliserta game, Lisboa is it at two players. That's our number five game. Our number four game is Castles of Burgundy. Now this is a Stefan Feld classic, probably his best known game. Pretty much any Feld game plays great at two. Typically, it's been said at least, that when he makes his games, he makes them... In thoughts of playing them two players with his wife, and and she probably helps with the game playing testing process. So it's no surprise his games play best at two. Castles of Burgundy, in particular, plays excellent because, once again, there are a lot of different opportunities to pick up tokens. And in some ways, it's also kind of a race game because you're trying to fill up certain sections on your board in order to score these different victory point conditions. When you do have a max player count of four, Some things are completely out of your hands and it's really hard to kind of shift gears and the game becomes very tactical. When you're playing with two, the game becomes really what it should be, which is a strategic gameplay of filling up your area and picking the right resources possible. So that's our number four game, Castles of Burgundy. Our number three game is Race for the Galaxy. Now, Race for the Galaxy plays for two to four players. It has a lot of expansions, which really kind of opens the game up, but if you haven't played Race for the Galaxy of two players, you are really missing out, in particular because what you'll be able to do in a two-player version is not just play one action, but be able to play two actions. Now, if you haven't played Race for the Galaxy, it basically comes down to allowing you the opportunity to place actions into play that allows both players to utilize. So you can explore, you can settle, you can trade, you can develop, all of these different actions are available but when you're playing a higher player count, you're only going to get to choose one and hope for the rest. Playing at a two-player count, you'll be definitely assured that you'll get two actions in play, one way or the other, and maybe up to four possible actions. The game is a lot faster, which it really needs to be, and it's a lot more enjoyable because you actually get to do what you want to do instead of the randomness of having four players kind of determine your different actions. So that's our number three game, Race for the Galaxy. Our number two game is Innovation. Now, Innovation plays two to four, but also has a number of expansions, which really opens up that player count. But I highly, highly recommend only playing at the two-player count there. I've played this with a number of different player counts, and I gotta be honest with you, one of the challenges of the game is you have to keep an eye on everyone's play, All these different displays of cards that are opened up, And you have to see what they're building and what they're counting and what the special abilities are. And it becomes really, really difficult to do so at the high player count. And it also takes a lot longer and really bogs down the game. If you want to utilize the special abilities to the maximum, not give away the victory just because you can't follow everyone's different tableau. You definitely want to play at the two-player count. Stay away from the expansions, at least as far as opening up that player count any higher innovations is great and that's why it's our number two and now our number one game that plays best at two players and that game is five tribes i've talked about five tribes for a lot of different reasons but in particular what's really most interesting dynamic about the game is it utilizes the mancala in a very interesting way if you're not too familiar with the mancala as far as the game is concerned or as mechanics concerned It's basically about picking up all the pieces from one area and then dropping them off sequentially in the other areas in a route that eventually leads you to a final area that you activate. So add to Days of Wonders treatment of that in this Arabian theme and it's beautiful. Great components, great colored meeples and each of those different colored meeples does a different action. There's a lot of cards that come into play here. There's gins that come into play. There's resources that come into play. So when you're playing with a large player count, four players or even five players with an expansion, it really bogs down because the AP is immense because you are trying to make a decision on what to do with your turn. But if you have several other players going before you, the board state's going to be radically different by the time it gets to you because once things are activated... Those things take effect, they're, they're wiped away, they're changed, and there's no longer an opportunity for you to score or do your abilities that you'd like to do at that time. So by playing with two players, the AP drops tremendously because based upon what the other player is doing, you know exactly what's now available to you. You can plan your movement, you can take your action. It doesn't take all day. Playing with four or even five players is a nightmare. If you want an outstanding, great game at the two-player count, that isn't a two-player game, we highly recommend Five Tribes. All right, so that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris, and I'm glad that you joined me at the table.